This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We begin with something that might surprise you. Many Western states, including Colorado, are in the top 10 when it comes to citizens who die at the hands of police. And many of these officer-involved killings take place in rural areas. All that may seem counterintuitive based on the news that's come out of cities like Chicago, Cleveland, and Baltimore. Kate Schimmel recently reported on this for High Country News. She joins us from Seattle. Kate, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You tell a story out of Idaho. A rancher was killed by sheriff's deputies there. What happened and why is it emblematic? Yeah, it's a very interesting story. So Jack Yantis uh, was a rancher, longtime resident of Council, Idaho, And uh, one of his bulls wandered into the highway and was hit by a car. And I think as many rural folks would recognize the situation, he went down to ostensibly put it out of its out of its misery. And in doing so, encountered cops who had showed up to the scene as well, sheriff, sheriff's deputies. And somewhere in there, the situation escalated and he was shot and killed and um, and died on the scene. Hmm. So part of the reason it's emblematic is simply that it took place in a Western state. I think that was counterintuitive for many of the people who came across the story. But Western states and certainly rural areas are are not immune to some of the same patterns that we've seen play out much more prominently in Eastern cities. the, The rancher was obviously armed, and I wonder if that had something to do with escalating the situation and law enforcement's misperceiving his intentions. Yeah, that's a really tricky uh, bit, especially for rural uh, officers. So they're far more likely to encounter people who are armed. And in an urban setting, I think that people tend to perceive that as escalation. In a rural setting, I, I think it's it's a harder thing to assess. I mean, it's it's always it's always a challenging situation for officers to tackle. Yeah, and to figure out what the context of the situation is. Yeah. So shed some more light for us on how Western states compare to others when it comes to officer-involved killings. I mean, it's surprising how many Western states are in the top 10. Yeah, I was very surprised by that uh, when I started my reporting. Um, one thing to note is that the data is is very incomplete and, and difficult to find. All right. So the the federal databases indicate that states like Nevada, Oregon, uh, New Mexico ha- rank among the highest for police-involved killings uh, in the country. Uh, the Guardian newspaper out of the UK started a, a database called The Counted, which tracked all of the police-involved killings that they could find last year in that database Six of the top states are Western states, and the top two states are New Mexico and uh, Wyoming, I believe, which is just remarkable. Yeah, Wyoming, especially given how rural that state is and casting more light on what you say is not just an urban phenomenon. So the big question, of course, is why? And we may have hinted at some of that, which is that rural folks may be armed for various reasons in ways that city folk aren't. Were you able to to shed more light on why. Yeah, I, I think before I, I give the reasons that my sources told me, I would say 
not all rural areas are alike. So the factors at play in one rural area may not be at play in another rural area. I think that's true in cities as well. You know, one of the things that was brought up with me is officers are more likely to encounter people with weapons, people with guns. And that means that they know when they go into a situation that their lives are at risk. I mean, they're always in a heightened state of awareness, if that makes sense. But but that is certainly a risk factor. Okay. Um, I think one of the other things that came up in my reporting uh, was that in sparsely populated rural areas, officers are often patrolling alone or in pairs and backup is far away. So in terms of security for them and, and feeling like they could de-escalate the situation and other people might show up, that's far more unlikely in a place like Council Idaho. And so um, you feel you feel far more isolated and perhaps vulnerable, and that's going to influence your decision-making as a law enforcement officer. Yeah, and, you know, there's some research that's come out of cities like Los Angeles that indicate when officers feel isolated in dark areas, uh, far from the light, far from other officers, they may be more likely to shoot first. What about training? Does training in any way play into this? Yeah. You know, everyone I spoke with said that training was a huge part of this question. And the training in rural areas often doesn't look so different than the training in urban areas. You see an increasing focus on military tactics, military weapons. Uh, The Albuquerque Police Department, which is obviously not rural, but is not unlike some of the rural departments nearby, had a class called Killology that was about, you know, officers learning how to have a soldier mindset. And, and that sort of thing is, is really focused not on de-escalating situations that might be de-escalated using other tactics. What did you find out about the people who are getting killed by police in the West in particular? What are the demographics of the victims? Well, the demographics of the victims are in many ways not unlike what we've seen in big Eastern cities or big Western cities. Um, Black people are more likely to be shot. Native Americans um, also face higher risk, as do Hispanics and Latinos. I think one thing that's worth remembering, many of our rural areas are not and are no longer predominantly white, or they are predominantly white, but there is an increasing presence of Hispanic or Latinos and, and always have been Native American communities. And those folks are more likely to be shot and killed by police than their white counterparts. Kate, you told us earlier that there are a lot of holes in the data, but I think a natural question is to ask on behalf of law enforcement, are they also more likely to be killed in the West? Does it, does it cut both ways? You know, that's a great question. And it's not one, it's one I really wish I had an answer to, um, I think that's another area where I think more and better data would be great because yeah. one uh, officer I spoke with really raised the question, that question exactly. You know, do police officers feel more at risk when they're on the patrol in Western states? And I don't think we have an answer to that. Were there any instances you came across of departments that have trained perhaps in the other direction, not that kind of militarized mindset but one that de-escalates? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Las Vegas uh, was indicted 
for or or was taken to task by the feds for really pretty brutal police tactics a number of years ago. And in the years since, they have really focused on changing their tactics. Now, um, I think that's a complicated switch situation, but but some of the data and some of the response to that indicates that they really have come up with some interesting ways to do this. I think um, one officer I spoke with, former officer from Craig, Colorado, said that his department, his former department, really had a thoughtful culture around, you know, if an incident happened, talking about it and, and talking about it not uncritically, right? Discussing what would be the better way to handle that. And I I think those kinds of conversations among police officers are really, really crucial to changing how we police. Thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Kate Schimmel, reporter for High Country News, and there is a link to her story at cprnews.org. Coming up, empowering women in Afghanistan through mountain climbing. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Even though they faced retribution from the Taliban, 13 young Afghan women made history. Over the summer, they were the first to summit a nearly 17,000-foot peak in the country's Panjshir Valley, and they'd never climbed a mountain before. 44-year-old Danica Gilbert of Ridgeway, Colorado, led this expedition and says she has more planned for the new year. She is with us by phone from Ridgeway. Danica, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So an American nonprofit called Ascend organized the expedition, trained the women who ranged in ages 16 to 22, and then invited you to lead them. The original plan, as I understand it, was to summit Mount Noshok, at nearly 25,000 feet, it's the highest peak in Afghanistan. But I guess after a scouting trip, you made a different plan, and it wasn't just because of terrain, but because of the Taliban? Yes, that's correct. We Two weeks prior to our expedition, violence in the Badakhshan province had escalated, and the airline that we were going to use to get there had been shut down as well. And those two things led us to um, find a new objective. It was just impossible to climb in that region. Were you disappointed? Because it's something of an iconic summit, isn't it? I was disappointed, yeah. And the girls were quite disappointed. Uh, A couple of them actually thought, we're not going to go, we're not going to participate in this expedition, because they were so excited to go climb the country's highest point. You said girls. I'm always very cautious (laughs) about whether whether to say, you know, young women or girls. But some of them were girls in your mind. Well, you know, and it's... It is a conscious choice to call them girls. Um, it's partially cultural. In Afghanistan, the term doctoro means daughter or girl, and it's a very respectful term. Um, calling somebody a woman there is um, indicating they're older, they're probably married, they you know are living a very different life, and a girl is, is kind of like equivalent of saying princess. And so calling them doctoro uh, is very respectful, but it is translated directly as girl. Interesting. Well, you settled on a nearly 17,000-foot peak in the Panjshir Valley, and you, I should say, have been a full-time guide for 13 years. You've been climbing mountains all over the world, so you have a lot of experience. Uh, but you say that this particular peak is really challenging terrain. How do you prepare first-time 
climbers. First, mm. first time. Yeah, and unfortunately, the girls don't have a lot of opportunities to train. They're in Kabul, where they're they're very limited on what they can do. Even girls in the mountains are fairly limited on they can't go out without somebody else. They usually have to have a male escort. So our girls were hiking uh, once a week. On Fridays, they would get out and hike the nearby mountains, and we'd take them rock climbing. And that was really the only chance they had to prepare. Did the men in their lives, fathers, relatives, brothers, um, object to any of this? One of the requirements for any of the team members that we have is their families have to be supportive. Uh, And that support ranged from some fathers being very enthusiastic and brothers wanting to come along to other families one of the one of the families the daughter the youngest daughter was coming to practice and didn't have her father's approval and we continually said to her you you can't be part of the team unless we have his approval and eventually he gave approval and just prior to the expedition asked if his other daughter could join and we were pretty maxed out with 12 girls. I had all the equipment ready and everything ready to go, but because it was this very conservative father asking for his second daughter to come when he hadn't let the first one join, I, I agreed, and we took a 13th girl, which, which was a, a large group. Yeah. Why do you think he changed his mind? I think uh, he really saw the change in his daughter and the shift in her. The first time I met with him to, you know, to try to get his approval for her to join... He uh, basically said, you know, I, I think what you're doing is a waste of time. It's a waste of money and resources. She's a girl. She's not really worth anything. Mm. But I don't know what else to do with her, so see, see what you can do with her. And then I met with him about a month later and expressed to him how strong of a rock climber she was and what a great role model and leader she was for the other girls. And you could see his eyes brighten a little bit. And by the end of our expedition, when his daughters came back, there was a significant shift in him, real pride at seeing what they had done. And um, for me, it was a really moving experience to see that shift in this man. I understand you were surprised by the things that came easily to these (laughs) girls and the things that they struggled with. Will you share an example of that? Sure, yeah. One of the things I was concerned about as we were climbing this peak, you get up on this ridge, and there's a 1,000 to 1,500-foot drop down the the north side of the ridge, and I didn't tell the girls about it because I thought that that would scare them and it would um, frighten them. And we got to that point, and not a single one of them really even noticed it or remarked on it. It didn't seem to frighten them. And, you know, a group of inexperienced climbers from the U.S., would have definitely been quite scared by that. And then also, you know, moving over talus fields, which are big expanses of rocks that shift and move underneath you, is usually quite challenging for people that are new. And these girls moved very easily, very adept, and very carefully through that. But then the converse side of it is they'd sprain their ankles, and it was like the world was coming to an end. And they had never really experienced that because they haven't grown up being athletic. We're speaking with Danica Gilbert of Ridgeway, Colorado, who this summer led 13 Afghan women up a peak in Afghanistan. And in this new year, she plans more expeditions with Afghan women on mountains. So the girls named the peaks you all climbed together the Lion Daughters of Mir Samir. And I understand Mm -hmm. you have asked the government to officially name 
the mountaintop that? Any word on the progress? The uh, government of Panjshir has agreed. They met, all the tribal elders met and discussed it. And the girls originally asked it to be called Koishir Doktorone Afghanistan, which is the land daughters of Afghanistan. And the local government asked us to name it Koishir Doktorone Mir Samir, which is the land daughters of Mir Samir, to recognize the, the province and the, the crowning jewel peak of that area, which the girls were eager to do. Mir Samir, yeah, help me understand that. That's the name of uh, uh, the peak? It's a 19,000-foot peak that um, sits high above most of Panjshir Valley, and it's steeped in legend. In the 50s, um, some British guys tried to climb it for the first time, and it was the subject of a book called A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush by Eric Newby. Uh, and lots of people have tried to climb the mountain, and it's, it's fairly difficult to climb. I don't actually know how many people have ever summited, but it's definitely less than 20. And it's a, it's a, a spectacular peak. As a climber, it's something I would love to see some Afghan climbers summit. And calling themselves then the Lion Daughters of Mir Samir. Uh, mm-hmm. I, su- I suppose that's a tip of the hat to their what? Their ferociousness in this regard. Yeah, and also the Panjshir Valley is known as the, the Lion Valley. Um, it has five different valleys in the big, greater valley. And then um, uh, Commander Masood, who was the head of the Northern Alliance, was a, a very strong figure in Afghanistan, and his name was the, the Lion of Panjshir. He um, led the resistance to the Taliban invasion and was unfortunately assassinated. Speaking of the Taliban, did you or did the girls have a brush with the Taliban? We didn't. We had some rumors that trickled into where we were from um, porters that were coming in that that were frightening of people coming from the neighboring province to kill us. But, you know, we, we had selected our camp and our location to provide um, geographic barriers to anybody coming in. And then we had the protection of the National Defense Security Forces in Afghanistan and the local government and they were all watching very carefully and very concerned about our safety and, and our, our well-being while we were there. So you were okay, the women were okay, but does this put their families in any jeopardy? Absolutely, yeah. And most of the families are willing to take that risk. Um, they're really tired of the constraints and the lack of freedoms, and they're willing, if their daughters want to do it, to support them. Um, some of One of the families did receive um, a night letter, which is, I, I didn't know much about this until I was over there, but the Taliban will drop a letter on your doorstep saying, what you're doing, we know what you're doing and we don't approve of it and you should stop. Sometimes you'll get several letters and then it will escalate to somebody visiting you at your door and threatening you. And then if you don't stop, then you're on a hit list. And uh, one of the families did receive the letter, and the father just, um, he told us about it, but said, you know, I'm not going to stop my daughters from doing what they want to do. A night letter. It sounds so ominous. Is it because they arrive in the middle of the night? or They do, yeah. And then you wake up, and there, there's an ominous threat at your door. Exactly. Yeah, and the girls have had other threats that are just normal threats to them in Kabul of, you know, um, a lot of it is verbal um, taunting and teasing and catcalling, but then it can escalate more. We had some of our team members not show up for several practices, and 
we were concerned about why, and we eventually found out that they had tried to negotiate with a taxi driver a fare. He was charging them too much. They refused to go with him, so they went to another taxi driver to get a ride to their practice. And the um, first taxi driver followed them. He continued to follow them for several days, so they basically disappeared and kept a really low profile to protect themselves. Well, briefly, uh, we mentioned that you have trips planned for 2016 in Afghanistan with this Ascend program. Can you say mm-hmm. if Mount Noshok is on the list of expeditions? It's that original mountain you wish to climb. It is, yeah. We we are not going to take the, the whole team there. We now have 30 girls on the team. Uh, there More girls would love to join, but we just don't have the capacity to handle that at this point. But we will take um, a team of the best climbers and go. Um, we're very vague about when and that to, to keep the safety um, of the expedition. And the same thing is true for the other projects that we have. Even the expedition we just did, the parents didn't even know where we were going until about a week before. Mm-hmm. Because it's just the more people that know, the greater chance there is that there's somebody who's going to be upset and plan some kind of attack. So we keep it very nebulous as to what our objectives are and when we're going. And as will we. Danica, lovely to, to speak with you. Great. Thank you so much. Danica Gilbert, a mountain guide who lives in Ridgeway, Colorado. And she talked about her work leading Afghan women. You can see photos from the 13's historic trip at CPRnews.org. When we come back, why it's harder than ever to be a farmer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's never been easy to be a farmer, but it's even harder these days. Farm revenue is expected to hit its lowest level in more than a decade. CPR's Ben Marcus reports on the consequences for Colorado, where lots of people work in agriculture. Drive an hour north of Denver, and you'll find yourself in one of the most productive agricultural counties in the country. Weld County also has some stunning views of the Rocky Mountains. This is where Dave Eckhart's family decided to settle. I am fourth generation. Uh, Great-grandpa came and uh, homesteaded. Eckhart navigates his truck through his 3,200-acre farm just south of Greeley. Yeah, I'm not not sure if they stopped for the view or the dirt. I'm hoping a little of both. He just finished what he says was a good corn harvest, but unfortunately a glut of commodities from corn to wheat to hay has prices spiraling downward. It's been a wild swing in fortunes, even for a business used to highs and lows. If you have any, any kind of suicidal tendencies, it's best that you stay away from production ag. Corn farmers have been hit particularly hard. After posting a record billion-dollar harvest in Colorado three years ago, corn prices have been cut in half. And now comes the challenge of, of farming in 2015-16, in uh, like it was basically in the, uh, in the 80s. Talk of the recession of the 80s sends chills through even the toughest farmer. But the pessimism is understandable. Farm incomes are forecast to fall a whopping 38% this year. That's a pretty big hit pretty big hit. That's Norm Dalsted, an agronomist with Colorado State University, and he says farmers are facing a double whammy. Not only are prices down, but the cost of production has risen dramatically, up nearly 40% in the last few years. Prices fall, costs go up, so you have that declining margin. Dalsted says it's too soon to know just how long crop prices will remain low. Obviously there's concerns, but I wouldn't say it's a recession at this point. 
Usually in agriculture, when one crop is down, another is up. But Mike Fergus, who sells farm equipment in Greeley, says this time's different. It sure seems like we've seen a slump of the entire industry here in the last year. Fergus runs G&M Implement with his father. He sits in a wood-paneled office, a bookcase behind him filled with toy tractors. He's forecasting a rough year ahead for his business as well. So you just got to really step up your game in the service and and parts and continue to take care of those guys um, in different ways. Other than selling new equipment, we're just going to go take care of the equipment they have. The company that makes John Deere tractors recently laid off 220 employees, and the Rural Main Street Index reports that farm equipment sales are at an all-time low. Tony Miller is vice president of First Farm Bank in Greeley. He says banks are beginning to question big purchases, like tractors and combine harvesters. Capital expenditures are one thing that uh, not only the customer but the bank kind of questions the customer, do you really need to do this when income is tight? Of course, any downturn creates winners and losers, and falling crop prices can benefit banks. Miller says farmers are actually using their lines of credit again. It's not all bad news for farmers either. Miller says unlike the dreaded 80s, interest rates are still low, despite a recent quarter percent hike from the Fed. Also, Miller says banks aren't seeing a big rise in loan defaults or bankruptcies as crop production was high. The good news this year was is that, for the most part, yields were pretty doggone good, so guys got things to sell. The, the other side of it is is there lower prices to sell those at. And that may be the only good news for farmers like Dave Eckhart. He's trying to remain optimistic, but if commodity prices stay low... You know, like any business, you can only afford to, uh, to hang on so long. And, uh, yeah, it could be devastating to rural communities across Colorado. Still, is all this cheap corn, dairy, and wheat good news for consumers at the supermarket? Apparently not, at least in the short term. The farm cost is just a small fraction of what we pay for our groceries at the check stand. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Speaking of agriculture, the National Western Stock Show starts this weekend. Before that, cowpokes will drive a herd of longhorn cattle through the streets of downtown Denver. It's part of the parade that kicks things off. Let's dig into some stock show history with Tom Noel. We spoke with him several years ago about his book, Riding High, which marked the event's 100th anniversary. Tom, welcome to Colorado Matters. Great to be with Colorado Matters. So uh, hundreds of thousands of people attend the stock show every year, but uh, I suspect many of them may not understand its humble beginnings and why it started. Right, and it had a false start. In uh, 1898, there was the stock show that was a riot, literally. Yes, not not in the fun way. Not in the fun right. way. Right. They made the mistake of offering up Moran free beer and free barbecue, wild game dinner, and half of Denver, the bottom half, <laughs> or the most disreputable half turned out. Babies were trampled. Women were trampled. One guy was murdered. The crowd broke through and got into the beer kegs first and into the barbecue, and all the guests and ranchers and dignified out-of-town people were squeezed out of the occasion. This so is this in... is the stock show they, they try to forget. Uh, okay, so its uh, beginnings are riotous, to say the least. Let's talk about that um, better-looking affair. Why did it start? Well, it's fascinating. It was primarily a trade show for people that wanted to breed better cattle. You had all these wild longhorn cattle that you see on the TV shows and the Western movies coming up, but they're real scrawny. It's not good beef. So they were trying to brew the herds, and they'd bring in the English Herefords and the French Charolais trying to brew things. So it got to be almost scientific about how to improve your cattle and how to improve the business. Let's talk about the elements of entertainment, the baby contests. 
The baby at a at a livestock show, <laughs> right? This was one of the biggest surprises, Ryan, to find a picture of little naked babies lined up being judged. I looked into it, and the women brought this on. They said, "You guys are spending all your time producing better cattle, better pigs, better sheep. What about improving the human race? Doesn't the human race need some improvement?" Sounds like it could become a slippery slope. Well, Tom, let's have you read uh, the recollections. This is Ethel Chamberlain, who uh, was one of these baby champions. Right. The Baby Health Contest in 1913. Contestants were graded on firmness and color of their skin, the shape and position of their ears, along with height, weight, chest measurement, head measurement, teeth, and general configuration. The champion baby boy and the champion baby girl each received $100 in 1913, when some people didn't earn that much in a year. Ethel Chamberlain, the grand champion Western baby of 1913, recalled many years later that nudity had not been as embarrassing as being presented fully clothed to a cheering crowd of 10,000. Even scarier was the ride she took with Buffalo Bill Cody. At first, Buffalo Bill held her high over his head. The crowd clamored for a closer look. He mounted a champion mare and took little Ethel for the ride of her life around the stadium arena. I was scared to death, she recalled later. I screamed bloody murder as we raced around the ring. In 1931, the stock show holds its first rodeo. How was that received? That was a big boon to the business. Uh, It was a struggle. There were years when it lost money. I think most years it did. This was an attempt to bring in people that didn't necessarily have any interest, financial interest in the agricultural industry, but would love to see cowboys, uh, to see the bronc riders and the bull riders. And uh, 1931, the attendance jumps. And uh, still, that's one of the biggest attractions and the biggest draws for the National Western. You write, in fact, about a horse named Five Minutes to Midnight. Tell us about that animal. This uh, horse was famous. Well, originally there was Midnight, and then Five Minutes to Midnight is the next champion. No cowboy had ever ridden this horse. It was the the worst draw you could get if you were a rodeo cowboy. You did not want to try to ride Midnight. Then after Midnight's retired, I'm not sure if it was his son or not, but uh, another horse called Five Minutes to Midnight comes in, and nobody ever rode this horse to the end of its career. It's now buried down at the Colorado Cowboy Hall of Fame as the unrideable horse. And the folklore was amazing. Uh, This horse drew more attention than any human contestant. And that was kind of intriguing that the stars of the show were the animals and the cowboys came and go and none of them could ride midnight anyway. Tom, you described the most memorable cattle roundup of all. It took place in 1947. Would you read that part of the book? Right, Ryan. It was before dawn on January 12, 1947, when 29 steers from Kansas smashed through their stock show corral and headed downtown and alarmed commuters coming to work. Uh, came to crashing stops, and early morning risers called the cops to get the cows out of their yards. Cowboys and jeeps and trucks helped the Denver police with this roundup in rush hour traffic. One of the Aberdeen Angus yearling steers got as far downtown as 19th and Curtis Street. That's right smack (laughs) in the middle of the Central Business District. Britt Allen, a stock show employee, tried to lasso it. The steer eluded the would-be cowboy and the cops and headed up Clarkson Street, where Sergeant Joseph T. Coogan finally shot it. The cops weren't great cowboys. (laughs) The only way they could catch or or handle one of these uh, animals was to shoot it. 
Infuriated, the animal turned on a patrolman after one of them had been shot and rammed him against a garage wall at 2521 Clarkson Street. These houses are still there in the Curtis Park neighborhood. Durkop survived with bruises and facial cuts. Patrolman William D. Rogers used a riot gun to shoot the steer dead, finally. This stuff still goes on, Ryan. Every year somebody gets loose, and uh, most recently heifers have gotten loose and headed down I-70 at rush hour. Was this the one in 1998? Yes. There's a Brown Palace story, too. For years, the tradition has been for the Grand Champion Steer, which fetches $100,000 at the auction, to be showcased the evening before the auction at the Brown Palace Hotel in that wonderful atrium-lit lobby, the grandest public space in Denver. And His Royal Highness there, of course, is groomed for this. They brush his hair. Even his eyelashes get curled up. He's perfumed. They use shoe polish to clean up his hooves, so he's beautiful, jet black. And they drink out of a little silver bowl, Brown Palace water, their entire Antesian water. There's another silver platter with hay on it, uh, the best hay possible, of course, for His Royal Highness, the Grand Champion's Tear. I interviewed uh, Carl Melman, the longtime manager there, and he had great stories about the Grand Champion Steer. But his best one, I thought, was the Grand Champion Steer that decided to leave the hotel and walked out the Tremont Place door and headed down 17th Street, the Wall Street of the Rockies, with all the great office buildings and towers there. And uh, the barman headed after it from the the bartenders, the bellhops, the whole crew trying to catch the steer. And thank heavens, about four or five blocks down, he stopped to admire himself in the reflection of glass <laughs> office window. And that was his undoing. He was captured and brought back to the brown. Well, competition is fierce at the show. And uh, sometimes, you write in the book, competitors have gone too far. What are some of the scandals in, in the history of the show? Probably the most memorable is the Big Mac scandal, named for a steer which was brought by the McDonald's chain. And, and often a, a big company like that will buy the steers as publicity. Like, like the, the fast food chain. Yeah. yeah. They, it might actually get into a McDonald's hamburger, <laughs> I guess, or the public, they hope, will believe that. And this was a uh, white Charolais that had been dyed to look like a black Angus and was sold as the grand champion under that assumption with a different name. But some little kid down there recognized it. The steer had once been on a ranch up in Kremlin, Colorado, and this kid brought it to his father's dad. And that looks like an awful like old Jeep. And they started to check it out, and sure enough, the paint was wearing away, uh, and the shoe polish and whatnot, and this... <laughs> Black Angus was becoming whiter and whiter and whiter, and then they gave it a bath, and the secret was out. Well, I wonder now with scientific advancements, hormones and things like that, if cheating has gotten more chemical? Well said, it has. And, of course, you have steroid scandals in a lot of different sports, but there was one there too, clembuterol, which is legal drug in a lot of the world for animals to kind of beef them up and uh, uh, make them look perkier and finer and all of that. But they uh, tested this particular grand champion steer, and sure enough, he tested positive for clembuterol. So they now do random testing and claim to be able to weed out any problems like that. But when you have $100,000 on the line, uh, some people are going to resort to illegal measures. 
Uh, more recently, the stock show has introduced some new events. What's proven popular in the in the more recent editions? Uh, this was one of the nicest wraps uh, in the story, I thought, is that rodeo and livestock, of course, are introduced by Hispanics, rodeo and rancho and all of that. And uh, they introduced the Mexican rodeo extravaganza, which is part fiesta, part rodeo. And it's kind of nice to see that happen because I think the stock show is regarded as kind of a redneck event. You didn't see too many people of color there. Mm. It was the good old cowboy types. But now you see a lot of Hispanic families going with that connection, a lot of kids. So that's been, I think, a very appropriate twist to recognize the Hispanic origins of the ranching and the rodeo business. What about sex? Is this a man's event? No, you know, oddly enough, there were women there from the very beginning. And the first named star was a Lula Long who was from back east somewhere, but raised the best horses, the finest quarter horses in the the country, and wrote books about them. And she would come with revelation, this magnificent horse, and ride it around. And she would have interviews down at the Brown Palace in her kimono or in her cowboy or cowgirl, I should say, outfit. So from the beginning, women have been part of that, the barrel races. And originally, they were even in on some of the bronc riding and some of those uh, more macho events. Thanks very much for your time. It's been a pleasure to be here and hope to see you at the stock show. And Ryan, I love that Western snap button shirt you're wearing. Well, I'm just grateful it's radio, Tom. No one gets to see it. (laughs) CU Denver history professor Tom Noel wrote Riding High, Colorado Ranchers and 100 Years of the National Western Stock Show. I spoke with him in 2006 when the book came out. The stock show starts Saturday. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An experimental Western is how some have described the new book from Robert Gardner McBrady. It's a short novel called The Western Lonesome Society. Some of it takes place in the old American West, and it features a tribe of Comanches. But McBrady swaps out traditional cowboys for characters like a make-believe therapist and a madcap linguist. The narrator is a paranoid writer trying to piece together his family history. McBrady, who lives in Louisville, spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Nathan. Great to be here. So there's Jim O'Brien. He's the protagonist and narrator of your book. And he desires to write the story of his ancestors, Tom and Will Sullivan, who were kidnapped by a tribe of Comanches. There's also flashbacks of his own childhood. And that's when we learn he was kidnapped as a kid as well. So what led you to make kidnapping such a central part of this book? Well, you know, I had my, my own kids. And as they were growing up, I came across various newspaper stories about people who had been kidnapped, and then they would be discovered years later living with uh, another family or something like that. And I was kind of a protective father, I think, so I could sort of, you know, worry about things like that, like about my own children being kidnapped. And uh, I started to see that the theme was really about belonging. You know, I had all these uh, parallel stories about people being kidnapped. So I really began to think about the nature of home and uh, where people belong and how you leave one home to find another home. Do you belong in that home? Questions like that. One thing that actually helped a lot, too, was actually, it it should have occurred to me much earlier, was that um, 
my mother had always encouraged me to write stories about our family roots. Huh. And so in the novel, I needed the motivation. Well, why is he writing about these kids growing up at the Comanches? And I realized it was really because he wants to please his uh, deceased mother by writing the uh, the story. But he's always been sort of a surrealistic writer. So somehow then the Old West gets merged with uh, surrealism. Why don't you read the section in your book now where Tom and Will are kidnapped by the Comanches? The years go by and they live as wild Indians. Tom fights it inside, clings to the pictures of home. But Will is letting it go. What good is the past to him now? What good are his parents? They never came for him. He cannot even see their faces anymore. They are part of an old dream, and soon he will lose even the dream. Tom fights for him, reminds him of the old days, but Will runs from him or covers his ears. He does not even like the old language anymore. But inside, Tom has not forgotten his promise. He will take Will home. And Will becomes so engrossed in this new life with the Comanche. He speaks their language, and even Tom begins to speak their language. But there's still that draw for Tom back to his family. Yeah, that was really the dynamic between the two kids. Uh, Tom, the older one, still has the memories of home. They're growing fainter, though. And his his, uh, Comanche father is kind to the boys uh, and has made them very much uh, his family. So he is torn. But he still has those memories of the past. And, you know, Will's memories are fading. Historically, that tended to be true if uh, captives were uh, taken into the tribe, particularly at a young age. They would very much relate to that as their, their family. And they were often very unhappy if, uh, if returned. When reading the book, yeah. it's like you're in the mind of Jim. And Jim is telling the story of his ancestors. How much of it is true? How much of it is not true? How much of it is a figment of his imagination? You know, I think it's somewhat filtered. That is, we don't know entirely. Some of it, I think, can be interpreted like, yes, this happened. But I think Jim's memories are imperfect. I think he's drawn back into the past, too, because maybe there's a certain dissatisfaction in his his present life. You know, so the past seems very, very uh, dramatic to him, maybe, you know, more exciting than what's going on in the present time. You fit a lot into 120 pages. There are several narratives, a whole slew of characters, including Jim's therapist, who only exist in Jim's mind. And uh, he's rather cruel, to be quite honest, or at least disinterested in what Jim has to say. Why does Jim imagine his therapist this way or, or even imagine a therapist at all? Well, you know, partly the whole subject of therapy kind of interests me. My One of my brothers is a therapist. But the way I see the uh, the imaginary therapist in a way, it's like um, Jim's own subconscious talking to him. You know, it's that part in our mind that just says the nastiest things possible to ourselves. And I want to know more about the, the mad linguist in this book, Dr. Dalton. He infuriates Jim. Where did the idea for this character come from? You've, you've got a number of characters in your book. This one, though, seems particularly maddening to Jim. I worked in, uh, at colleges for a long time, and um, I wanted to sort of capture some of the absurd uh, things of in academia. academia. You know, not that it's all, all negative by any means, you know, but... So I created um, 
President Jammer who releases a gas to keep the uh, the students and the teachers in line if they uh, complain about anything. And then Dr. Dalton, you know, I'm not entirely sure how he emerged, but I think I was thinking a little bit about how Jim deals with language. So what's the best way to attack him? Through language. So Dr. Dalton has found a way to insert uh, syllables into into prose that will send people flying into a rage when they read the uh, whatever he's written. I think in some ways I was trying to create Jim as being a besieged figure. So I think now he's even being besieged through in, in writing. Which is what he loves and has a passion for. Y- yes, exactly. Yeah. So how much of Jim is you? Jim bears a resemblance to me. Let, let's say that. But he's not limited to me or I'm not limited to him. You know, there there's some resemblance there. Um, you know, like the the kids in the novel who were kidnapped by the Comanches. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know, I sort of drew upon my own children to uh, help create those characters. Are they boys? Yeah, I have two sons about the same age as Tom and Will in the book. So, you know, I kind of played off that dynamic of, of brothers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Louisville author Robert Garner McBrerty. His new short novel is called The Western Lonesome Society. Uh, The narrative that you create through this book, uh, we jump to the 1800s, then to modern times, then to a small town in Spain, then back to the university. Is it difficult to keep a coherent narrative? I had some structuring devices that that I started to use, partly uh, some repetitions. So, for instance, by using the repetition of the uh, imaginary therapist, you feel like you come back to a certain place you've been before. So these little returns to things that, that you've created earlier in the book, I think, help keep some sense of structure. But then I think the main way of structuring it was actually the Western tale that runs throughout, because that part is, very, is actually very structured. Yes. I think I'm playing around a little bit with the nature of consciousness itself. I understand this book actually started out as an entirely different novel. Uh, what happened? I had a really strange experience just in the the drafting of the book to start. Um, I had just published my uh, first collection of short stories uh, called Night at the Y. There's this kind of little period after a uh, after you write a book where you feel kind of open to trying something new. So... I decided I was just going to go to a coffee shop and write every day and just sort of see what emerged. So at first, I actually didn't have any idea at all. It you was just sat just, down and said, I'm going to write yeah, whatever. Yeah, I'm just going to write whatever. And I realized, though, you know, after a couple of weeks of doing that, that that seemed really uh, totally structureless. But some things were starting to happen. I got this concept um, that I would write a book called Notes to My Literary Agent. And in that book... A writer would be writing to his imaginary agent, telling her what books he was going to write. So one of the uh, ideas came up with was this Western drama. Then that storyline started to uh, to kind of uh, form in my mind. I, you know, I could picture these kids being uh, kidnapped by the Comanches and uh, growing up with them, and then at some point uh, returning. You know, I, I wrote the whole book, first draft, in about six months. And then it took about 15 years to rewrite. <laughs> you know, it was uh, Going back from time yeah, and time again. And... Yeah, it was really trying to figure out what it was all about. 
I also want to talk briefly about your other jobs. I understand you've had several writing-related gigs, such as a newspaper columnist, uh, an aforementioned English teacher, but you've also had many other jobs, a dishwasher, a hot dog salesman, an assembly line worker. How does this varied resume influence your writing? Yeah, yeah. I kind of, I draw from a lot of experiences, and then I do something with them. Like, um, yeah, my Tai Chi shows up in some of my stories and work. Uh, I did a little, a very little bit of uh, boxing at one point, but I found that that was a very fascinating world. So, uh, you know, that'll creep into my stories. You know, I never really plan for it to show up in a sense. Um, I'll just find myself uh, one day writing a, a story and some of these experiences pop into my head. And then I, I kind of take off with them. Like, I don't think I would ever be a real memoirist. That is, whenever I start to write about experience, it turns into something else. <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you, Nathan. Louisville writer Robert Garner McBrady spoke with Nathan Heffel. His latest book is called The Western Lonesome Society. There's an excerpt at CPRnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. <laughs> 